0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green Podcast. I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter is an internist who's passionate about transforming palliative care. She's the founder of the EndWell project, which is focused on precisely this. She also executive produced the Oscar-nominated Netflix documentary titled Endgame. Which was about terminally ill patients meeting medical practitioners seeking to change the perception around life and death, which is something we're going to dive deeper into today. Shoshana, welcome.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: So we have to start with your passion for end-of-life care. You've you've produced a short documentary titled Endgame, which was nominated for an Academy Award. You speak globally about end-of-life care, and then you're the founder of the NWOL Project. So suffice to say, there's a passion for end-of-life care. So wh- let's get to the, the why.
1: Yeah, so really early on in my medical training, so I'm an internist. I practice internal medicine, and, and I got interested in this topic probably my first month of of residency. I was in the intensive care unit, my required rotation, and I found myself taking care of so many older adults. Now we're talking people 80 to 85 plus years of age, and they were being admitted to our ICU where the sickest patients end up. And many of them were spending their final hours days weeks hooked up to tubes and machines and really hidden away from their loved ones and often in a lot of pain and i witnessed a a kind of suffering that i had never seen before and i realized that number one nothing that we were doing could turn back the clock on their age meaning They were older people and many of them had um, many chronic underlying medical conditions and then end-stage organ disease or widely metastatic cancer. And it didn't seem that most of the time the medical interventions that we were doing were gonna do anything to cure their incurable disease. And, and, And secondly, it turned out that most of these people didn't have a say in this trajectory. They were sort of treated this way aggressively, invasively by default. And a light bulb went on for me when I realized that's how all people in this country are cared for. We sort of have this protocolized way of doing all of these aggressive measures for everybody, no matter how old you are, no matter how sick you are. And sometimes even if it won't help you, I know there's many reasons for this. There's perverse incentives at play. We're not trained in how to have difficult conversations early on in the illness trajectory, such that we're asking patients or coming up with a shared plan about what to do next. And and I think the third thing that I realized was that if asked, many of these people, I felt, wouldn't have chosen this path. They sort of didn't have a sense of what was going on. Day to day, moment to moment, or they had a mismatch in expectations about what the future was going to hold for them. And so, after seeing this happen, I realized that this was an area that we have so far to go in making sure that patients get care that's in line with their goals and their values, and that caregivers and families are supported and heard throughout this journey. And I was lucky in that I got uh, some wonderful mentorship by our palliative care providers. And so that set me early on in in training on a path to really think hard about how to make a difference in this area.
0: So what are the things that we're getting so wrong? Is it, is it those who are near end of life, they're losing dignity, they're losing control, they're suffering? Is it family members grieving and not being able to feel like they're part of the process? Like, I'm just curious, like, what are the things that we're getting so wrong from the perspective of the person who is near end of life and the people around them. And then also like how, how do we start to get this right?
1: Well, I think it's all those things. It turns out somewhere around 75 to 80% of people uh, want to die at home. That's what their wish is, and only 20% actually do. Right, the rest are dying, and this is pre COVID. The, the rest are dying in nursing homes, in hospitals, in other institutions, and many of them are, are dying in pain. So it, it turns out, and this is actually really relevant in terms of COVID, that being intubated in an intensive care unit, which is what happens when you become very ill often, and especially with COVID, that's primarily a lung disease, we stick a really hard plastic tube down your throat and hook you up to a ventilator machine that forces air into your lungs moment to moment. And then we, we pump you full of lots of drugs that to help you, but that sedate you or, or treat you with antibiotics or other medicines. And it turns out that's really traumatic and really painful if you're lucky enough to survive it. And then it takes months and months if you do recover to get better and to be even back to maybe where you were before. And so that's an end of life experience that I think most people wouldn't choose, right, if they had an option. Now, sometimes there's a circumstance where you're young and healthy and you, God forbid, get hit by a car or or some kind of freak accident. And and of course, we're going to do everything we can to to save your life if that means going through those kinds of things because you have a good chance of, of recovery. But I think for a lot of older people who are more frail or people that have been dealing at any age with chronic illness for a long time, there's much less of a chance for surviving and for having a quality of life that you would choose. And so, those are the issues there that I think uh, people don't recognize unless they either have worked in healthcare have been with a loved one or a friend in the intensive care unit or have themselves been that sick and and can see kind of just how uh, difficult and really kind of nightmarish th- those scenarios are. And um, so that's that's what I really, as hard as it is, I think it's really important that people recognize that reality and that in the moments when it really matters, they are able to be advocates for themselves as patients, as family members, as caregivers and say, Wait, hang on here. So you're telling me this is what's going on, but let's talk about what my options might be. This is what I value in my life. Here's what I'm willing to give up for a chance to get better. And if time is short, here's how I want to spend that time. I think these are just really critical points to be thinking about throughout life.
0: So the the choice to die at home or... Die at a hospital or the choice to fight or not to fight, if you will?
1: Well, to me, it's, it's sometimes not quite that binary. It, sometimes it can be a lot more nuanced depending on the, the circumstances. But I do think that asking yourself this question of what matters most to me in my life based on who I am in this moment, and then how can my doctor or my care team provide the right care such that I can meet those goals? And that can mean a number of different things. And, and for some people, it's, it absolutely makes sense to be in the hospital for a time period and then reevaluate and say, hey, if I'm not getting better, I would like to be at home or I would like to be doing something else, whether it's hospice, whether it's another kind of treatment. But I think it's taking a pause at many points along the way to make sure that your needs are being met that your care team recognizes who you are as a human being. And our job really is to do our very best to tailor our treatment based on on what your goals and your values are, especially if we know that time is short.
0: So you mentioned COVID and with COVID, there are so many heartbreaking circumstances, stories you read about, whether it's not being able to say goodbye or the, the suffering that takes place end of life or what's happened in nursing homes so i'm curious like in your opinion do you think covid will change the way we think about end of life the way we think and talk about grief the way we think about these very they're not binary these very nuanced conversations and circumstances with regards to all things end of life
1: I do think COVID has really shifted how the public is thinking about and talking about the end of life. I think one of the strange gifts almost of this really horrible uh, experience is that it's shown everyone just how fragile life is, right? So no matter how old you are, tomorrow is never a given. And that's true COVID or not, but I think it's made this conversation around our own mortality that much more kind of palpable and top of mind for people because they recognize that with this invisible disease or illness, it's, it could cause you to be sick, whether you're 25 or 55 or 95. And so it's, we're finding that a lot more young people are talking about this and saying, well, if I were to become sick... Who would be taking care of my children? Who would care for my parents if I'm not there uh, to be with them? And so it's opening up this conversation in a new and different way, which I actually think is a good thing.
0: Well, I think you when we think about death, there was this great soundbite in the documentary Endgame where someone said the scariest parts about dying, the lack of control and the unknown. And I would say, yes, that's probably accurate.
1: Well, and that's a lot of what we're going through right now with yeah. COVID, right? Yeah. Moment to moment, we, there's so much uncertainty. <laughs> and it's like, my goodness, I have never in my lifetime felt this uncertain about what tomorrow looks like. That's for sure.
0: So where do you think, so I think of lack, lack of control, the unknown, then I think about religion, spirituality, how do they play a role? Because you think about end of life, so much of the conversation is what happens? What ha- what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to my loved ones, who's going to, you know, when I was young, you know, much younger and I wasn't married, didn't have kids, if I were to die, I'd be like, eh, I'll be, I'll be fine, whatever. But now I have young children, I have a wife, I think about more about uh, what's going to happen to these other people. And I think that's where so much of the the fear and the unknown about what happens on the other side and how do we have that conversation and what role does that play for one the person suffering nearing end of life and what role does that play for the loved ones we leave behind
1: Yeah well I think there's a lot there I, I do think for a lot of people that spirituality organized religion play a huge part in their journey I think for people who are chronically ill or for whom they, they receive a life-limiting diagnosis, they often look to their faith communities or their spiritual traditions for support, thinking through some of these existential questions about what, what's life about, what, maybe what happens when I die. I do think that for so many people, that's a huge area and source of support. And then thinking through maybe even once you're gone, who, who will step in and support your family? And I do think that a lot of faith traditions have have really beautiful rituals uh, around that. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that for so many patients that I've cared for and then in my own personal experiences, that that's a big part of the conversation. And I think one of the amazing things about the field of palliative care, which I'll just quickly define, it's a specialty of medicine that's a team-based approach to caring for people and their families facing a a life-limiting illness and really focuses on quality of life and the relief of suffering. any time throughout the course of a serious illness. So not just at the end of life. I think that's really important to point out. Palliative care is best when it's alongside curative treatment and start at the time of a serious illness diagnosis. And one of the amazing things about palliative care, as I mentioned, this team-based approach, they often have a nurse, a chaplain. Uh, a doctor, sometimes even a pharmacist, uh, a social worker, and a case manager that really wrap around families and deal with a lot of not only the medical stuff that's really important, but sometimes even more important are some of these psychosocial issues, the existential distress that comes with a serious illness diagnosis, and then really tapping in, if if appropriate, to chaplains who come from various faith traditions or, or spiritual backgrounds, but can really support patients and families through an incredibly difficult time. And so I've just seen it be so incredibly helpful for for people and their families.
0: So with regards to palliative care, you know, as you started to embed yourself in the process, was there anything stood out where you said, wow, like this is an opportunity. We're not doing enough here.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that what we call serious illness conversations, meaning how Clinicians are trained to talk with patients and families about these really nuanced conversations about, gosh, this is what your prognosis is looking like. Here's what your illness trajectory might be. What do you think about this? Who are you as a human being? What does this illness mean in the context of your life? How can we tailor our care such that we, we can help you have an experience, if time is short, that's in line with your personal goals and how you would want to be spending your time, if possible. And so those are challenging conversations. They can be quite emotional, both for the clinician as well as for patients and families. And those conversations and those communication skills aren't taught. We are not doing a good job of, of training doctors in how to have these conversations how to have them early on. When someone is diagnosed with a serious illness, we've only just begun incentivizing them financially, meaning that if I sat and talked to you for three hours and and really got to the heart of all of these things and we really made a lot of headway in terms of next steps for you as a patient, I don't necessarily get reimbursed for that time. Whereas if I took you to the operating room and gave you a new liver, it's a very different situation in terms of the financials. And so not that, I'm not saying that doctors make choices based on that, but I'm just saying it's not incentivized in the culture of, of medicine and in the, in the culture of medical education to be having these really critical conversations that can truly be life-changing for patients. And so I think that these communication skills should be taught just like any other procedure that we spend years and years learning in medical school and and during residency. I think it would do a world of good. We know patients really appreciate it, families do, and it's good for doctors too, because we want to provide care that, that patients want and they understand.
0: So in addition to working with doctors to better their communication skills, what can regular normal people do with regards to their communication skills when, you know, a, a loved one is, is nearing end of life? What, what are the things we should know about communicating in those, under those circumstances?
1: Well, I think many things. I, I don't, For sure, don't assume that your doctor is any better than you are at, at talking about hard stuff and that as hard as it can be to say, hey, I have a question doctors, what's happening here? Let's talk about this. This is my mom. This is my brother, my father in the bed here. I want to make sure that their wishes are being uh, honored. I think that would be number one. So don't be afraid to advocate for, for yourself or for your loved ones, even though it's very hard in these situations. And I think two is making sure that you yourself have talked about some of these scenarios with the people that you love and assigned a healthcare proxy. Meaning someone that can speak for you, someone that knows you well and could speak for you if you are unable to speak for yourself in a moment like this. And you've conveyed your wishes such that they can be your advocate in these scenarios. I think thirdly, knowing that most doctors really want to do the right thing and and help and really help patients and families through these hard experiences. But sometimes we don't always know the best thing to do. And so again, get, getting back to this idea of, of really needing to advocate and don't be afraid to say, hang on, we got to take a pause here. Even in an intense moment, I think that can be really helpful for people to just say, let's talk about this. What is going on? Especially if there's confusion or a, a mismatch in terms of expectations in a healthcare setting.
0: So going back to the spiritual religious aspect of this, there's some people, we fear death, well, some people feel de- fear death and some people don't. And it goes back to this, and again, it's not binary, although this question <laughs> is quite binary, <laughs> is death something that's terrible or is it something that's wonderful? And how, do, how, do you, how does that come into the context of this conversation and like the circle of life and the, the, I think the perspective where we kind of look for and trying to make sense sometimes of, of death?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an individual question for people, and it probably depends on how you were raised, how much you talked about life cycles and death being a part of life as a child, maybe even your faith tradition, or if you have a spiritual background in terms of how you think about this. I have a friend who who says that life and death really aren't separate things. You're doing both at the same time. or or living and dying, rather, aren't separate things. You're doing both at the same time. So for me, that's a really beautiful way and and a wonderful perspective to approach uh, this discussion with. But I, I think for a lot of people, death, of course, is really hard. We're sort of programmed and wired to want to be alive. Life is great. And so I think fear is totally natural and normal. And I never want people to think that they have to be excited about death or that it's some wonderful thing they should go running towards. I think it's okay to, to have fear again of the unknown, but I think, and B.J. Miller says this so beautifully in the film Endgame, having some kind of relationship with our own mortality and, and sort of questioning how you feel about it can be really powerful and, and helpful. I think high level death is really hidden away in our culture. As I mentioned, most people die in a hospital or or other kind of institution. And so 100 years ago, families used to witness death as a regular occurrence in their homes. It was normal. Granted, people died much younger and we didn't have modern medicine. So there were a lot of negative things about that. But it was sort of seen as a natural part of life. And as soon as modern medicine came about... We shifted the experience of illness and, and then the end of life and really, frankly, aging to institutions. And so young people didn't really see or don't really see their grandparents get old and, and become sick and, and die. And so, again, it's really not being thought about, being you know talked about or being planned for in the ways that it, it maybe should be. And so I think all those things together lead us to this place of really, in general, being a very much a death-denying culture.
0: Well, I almost have an image in my head of, insert any movie or TV show that's set back centuries ago, and you have the village, so to speak. And in the village, you have all these multi-generational families. And within the multi-generational families living together, you have the matriarch or the patriarch. And you have that person, they're about to pass and the family gathers and the village gathers and it's this very, it's a very, it's a more intimate experience and it feels like that's not easier, but in some ways a more humanized experience to the, the stark contrast of I'm in a nursing home, I have COVID, you go, by. can't talk to anyone, you're in a room, someone in a hazmat suit comes in and that's...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really sad what's going on now. I mean, I think there's so many things to mention, but the thing that stands out for me the most is this isolation really, that out of necessity, almost, we're needing to separate from people who are potentially ill and to keep others from being infected. And part of me recognized as a doctor and scientist that that's the right thing to do, but it's so devastating, right, for families to not be, to be, not be able to be with their loved ones. And, and at the bedside around the end of life, and that's being left to doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers to really fill in, if they can, in those roles of even just sitting at the bedside. Uh, And then after someone dies, not being able to attend funerals in person. I mean, it's COVID has completely shifted how we are grieving, how the mourning process is going for people. I mean, it's just a very different world than even it was four months ago.
0: Well, and I've talked to some doctors about this. When you isolate someone who is nearing end of life or not doing well in that type of circumstance, they're probably gonna, like, what you're doing to them emotionally is, is very damaging. And one could argue that there's probably a death sentence here when you do that to someone who's already in a fragile state, and maybe the only thing they're holding on to. Is that loved one who comes to visit them or that connection and we all know how powerful that is for people and the human spirit and once you lose that that's 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 hard
1: for sure and i mean couple that with the just how the infection impacts the body i mean there's a lot there um and really it's these circumstances are just incredibly challenging for everybody not only for the patients but of course for for family and other loved ones who want to be there so badly, but just can't. And so it's, there are a few hospice agencies around the country who are are working so hard to make sure that patients who get, get enrolled in hospice, meaning they're foregoing curative treatment, but are really focused on their comfort. They're making sure that family members can get PPE such that they can go in and and if they want to to sit at the bedside of their dying loved ones really be there and it's making such a big difference. I mean it's it's just wonderful what they've been able to do to get around some of the infection risk guidelines of course very carefully but it's it's really such a challenge.
0: Yeah, it is and whether it's covid or whatever the next thing is, we live in a a very challenging world and not being able to spend time with people we have someone who works for us who, you know, it was unclear whether or not she was going to be able to spend time with a loved one who was dying. And she was able to, God, God, God willing, but just it, it, problems we never thought we had in a process which already was flawed anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious on a personal level, how has your view on your own mortality or immortality changed you know, from when you started this process and this passion to where you are today, how, how do you view all this on a personal level? Death, end of life?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think for me, living with the sense or the perspective that life is finite every day is really kind of helpful. It helps me to really remember that the small things in life matter and that watching a beautiful sunset or seeing a beautiful flower when I'm out on a walk to really savor those moments, even though I'm only 40 years old and hopefully have many more years of life to live. The reality is we just don't know. And that saying I love you to my husband and and to my family, every time I say it, I really mean it. And so I think for me, it's allowed me to also recognize that the work that I'm doing in this world, I want to every day feel really as, as fulfilled as I possibly can, because we just, we don't know how long we have. And so it's in terms of how how I want to spend my final days. I don't know the answer to that. I think just like anything, you can have these wonderfully clear plans and then, life happens. And, and it may be that I don't get exactly what I want if I become seriously ill and at the end of life. But knowing that I have somebody who can advocate for me if I can't speak for myself gives me a lot of, I guess, solace. And, and I think as much as we can, as, as hard as it is to even think about the day when you are no longer going to be alive, I, I think it can actually really be in, an empowering experience too.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the power of just saying I love you and thinking that life is fragile. When I was so when I was 19, my father dropped out of a heart attack. Mm. And a couple weeks before, we gotten a huge fight and my parents were divorced. So I, you know, would bl- blow up fight and then a couple days before he died. So I waited a little bit, called sort of apologize in a very, you know, Son son and father who, who don't communicate that well more or less we moved on and sort of apologized in our own way and then a couple of days later he died and One of the things in the grieving process that became very clear to me like wow, I am so glad we had that conversation and sort of and and made amends because i would be i'm already feeling pretty bad right now but i would be feeling really terrible (laughs) if the last words i said to him were essentially like go to hell or whatever it was and click Uh (laughs) and i since then i clothes every I'm almost obsessed with it my wife my mother my well my three-year-old probably doesn't you know realize it yet I'm obsessed with saying no matter what like I love you like that's my clothes no matter what whatever fight it is I love you I love you I love you and I think it's an important reminder for life life is fragile life is fragile and so what is your wish what is your goal For everyone listening, how do you want us to think about end of life, palliative care? How should we be thinking about this?
1: Well, I think I said it before, I I, I would encourage people to personally reflect on what matters most to you in your life. Think about if, God forbid, you are to become seriously ill. You know, wh- how you'd want to be spending your time if, you know, you, you weren't, didn't have an illness that was curable or if time was short. And then talk to the people that you love about it. It actually doesn't have to be an intense or dark conversation. Sometimes there's even humor in it or you get to know the person that you love uh, better because you're sharing something really deep from inside. And, I think that's really important. And uh, yeah, and know that if you need palliative care, ask for it because it won't always be readily offered to you in a clinical setting, but nearly every hospital and healthcare institution has it. And we want to be there for you. You just have to, you got to ask for it sometimes if it's not being offered.
0: So with with all that's going on in the world right now and specific to the, the end of life conversation, I'm curious what... If we tap into the pessimist and optimist in you, what scares you and or co- what are you concerned about and, and what are you excited about?
1: Specifically in terms of COVID, what's going on? No,
0: I think, well, well and end of life. And I, and I think end of life in the context of COVID, because I think COVID is mm-hmm. playing a significant role in end of life and in some ways the, the, the cruelty of what's happening to people there.
1: Gosh, so many things scare me right now in terms of, in terms of the end of life. I'm, I'm most fearful that because of a lack of a preparation and public health messaging, we're going to continue to see many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands more people die of this illness. And that really breaks my heart and, and die in ways that are very uncomfortable and traumatic, often in the intensive care unit and hidden away from loved ones. I mean, it's just the worst possible way I can tell you. Uh, I've seen it many times to to die. And it's, I guess, I'm most scared about that and the future being so uncertain in terms of what'll happen over the next six to 12 to 18, even 24 months around, around the infection. What gives me hope is that more people are talking about this, that more people are willing to have challenging conversations with the people that they love. By talking about it, it doesn't mean that you're not going to receive care if you need it. It's much more making sure that that your doctors and and folks that are caring for you, as well as your loved ones, know how you want to spend your time if you are to become seriously ill. And that very well could mean that you want to be in the hospital and have all these things done for a chance to get better. Absolutely. And we can offer that for you. If that's not what you want, or it's something in the middle, we got to talk about those things. And it's really helpful. There's actually a cool card game called Go Wish that people can play to kind of ascertain some of these more nuanced pieces of the conversation. There's this beautiful ethical will that you can download off the internet called The Five Wishes. I find that to be really helpful. Another website, Cake, is, is also a great tool for advanced care planning. In full disclosure, I'm on their advisory board, so I just have to put that out there. But they've done a great job in terms of outlining some of the important questions to ask cuz it isn't always obvious how to talk about this or, or what the most important pieces are but i think just starting this conversation is really important and can do a whole lot to make sure that you get care that's in line with your with your personal goals and and your values
0: so i'm curious what you know what are you currently working on what's next for you
1: well day to day i i run end well. So we're a a nonprofit that's focused on making the end of life a part of life. And as you said earlier, trying to humanize the end of life experience. And we do that by really inviting different voices to the conversation. So I don't think that death and dying is a medical issue alone to be solved. I think this is part of the human experience and that we need more people involved and invested in coming up with new products and services and redesigning systems such that the end of life is a more human-centered experience. So we usually put on a conference every December. This year, we are not going to be doing the in-person version, but usually folks from tech and design and policy and patients and caregivers and artists and venture capitalists. and, And then of course, healthcare folks come together in a TED-style format to to dive into some of this hard stuff around caregiving, around social isolation and loneliness, around grief and loss and the death and dying process. And so, so this year, we're doing something a little different and launching a sort of a virtual campaign that we'll be announcing more about on our website very soon. But we're thinking very differently about how, through the lens of COVID, it's really shifted a lot of perspectives around these conversations. And and we're really trying to reach people that we've never, that we never have before of every, you know, age group in and engage in this discussion.
0: So my last question, so this is end of life care, death. These are heavy topics, can be emotionally exhausting, especially when you're on the front lines like you are. What do you do when, you know, you're just having... A rough day and I'm curious, like who and then who and what inspires you? Because these are topics that are heavy. And again, you're on the front lines.
1: Yeah, well, what inspires me every day? I, I think for me that I just find that getting to do this work is such a is such an amazing privilege. I never thought that as training as a doctor that I'd get to be involved in film projects and then run a nonprofit that focuses a lot on social media and, and do the work that I've been doing with sort of medical news corresponding in ways that we can reach people in different ways. So I think I'm inspired by the fact that, that I see culture shifting. I don't know that it's, I'm the one making the difference, but it's really encouraging to me to see so many people more interested in this conversation, as hard as it is. But it really is, again, seeing the end of life as a part of life is, to me, critical for living a good life.
0: Amen to that. Shoshana, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.